My wife and I were walking down the street in 2000 and we passed a girl and we turned around to look at her because she was wearing a pair of Lululemon yoga tights on the street. And she turned around and looked at us looking at her bum because that's where her logo was. <laughs> and I remember we had a lot of, you know, it's kind of an embarrassing moment, but that was the moment I know that Lululemon had made its way out onto the street and was going to be the brand that it could be. That's how success happens. From Entrepreneur Magazine, my name is Robert Tuckman. I self-funded, built up, and eventually sold two businesses to major players in the sports and entertainment industry. And I am fascinated by other entrepreneurial minds and what drives high-achieving people. So on this podcast, we're going to learn what they've learned and what it takes to really succeed. Chip Wilson is the founder of Lululemon. As many know, it is a healthy lifestyle-inspired athletic apparel company for yoga, running, training, and most other sweaty pursuits, creating transformational products and experiences which enable people to live a life they love. His mantra is to create possibilities for people to live longer, healthier, more fun lives in his pursuit to elevate the world from mediocrity to greatness. However, what many people don't know about Lululemon and its founder is some of the hardships throughout the process of building an iconic brand. Chip almost went bankrupt five separate times as Lululemon attempted to establish itself. Additionally, Chip was diagnosed with muscular dystrophy in his 30s. While Lululemon is certainly a success story, it has not been without difficulty. You're in for quite the privilege to listen to one of the most mentally tough founders I've ever had a chance to meet. I kicked off our conversation with Chip by asking him about his first venture. I came back from California, once back to Calgary with a pair of like these Hawaiian shorts and my girlfriend wanted them and so did a bunch of her friends. So we both knew how to, we both had mothers that were sewers. So we started making some and we sold them type of thing. And then we decided to go into business with them. And um, we made a couple hundred of them and maybe about 200 men's shorts and they were reversible and quilted and wild and everything like that. And nobody wanted to buy them. Yeah. So we had to we had to open up our own store to do it. And I think the great thing about that is we learned vertical retailing and no one would ever. And I didn't. And it seemed so easy to me. I was making stuff. So I own my own manufacturing. I own my own wholesale business. I own my retail stores. And of course, when I had two more markups than any other person in the clothing business had, I couldn't understand why it wasn't so easy. So you fall into a new business model by mistake. So that's what started all that off. And eventually what happened in terms of that business? Because I know you were successful in building it up. What was the uh, eventual outcome? Well, it was successful. I mean, growing like any other small business with no knowledge on how to do business, you know, being 25 years old to 30. And, but then I loved having no debt and I was, you know, had my cash under control. And, but I got into business with two other guys. I paid off all my debts. They came into it with debt. And I never realized, you know, you merge two companies together and now suddenly I'm responsible for that debt with interest payments. And uh, then it becomes very hard to borrow money from the bank. And then we moved out of this vertical retailing model, which, which kind of invented, but didn't really realize how powerful it was. And because everyone said wholesale is the way to go. So we went wholesale and just, you know, we spent another 
probably 10 years, just struggling year to year to year, not really making any money. Always thinking next year is going to work and next year it's going to work. And we went through a couple, three arcs. We went through surfing, which over a five, six year period went from three companies to 500 companies down to three companies again. Same thing happened in skateboarding and then the same thing happened in surf and um, snowboarding. But as it got to the crest of snowboarding, now I was smart enough to see that there was a way of, uh, of like a time to sell. So I sold do Moro Snowboards, a public company out of Salem, Oregon, and uh, then was just then sat on a million dollars. You know, we sold it for 15. I only got a million dollars out of it after paying the private equity guys and the banks and everyone else out. So, um, and then I thought I'd just get a job at Starbucks and buy a house and a car and never go into business again. <laughs> but that didn't last very long. It's really interesting in that point. And you hear your name now and people who think of you and Lululemon, and you just said for for ten years, you know, it was always next year or this year. What do you think internally inside of you drove you to keep going, not to quit? Well, I think I would have done it for no money anyway, which I think ultimately is why I became successful because I never because I could build product and and brand and never have to do anything short term. I think that, you know, the thing about next year, next year, I, I think a, a, an entrepreneur is like so totally optimistic. But as a young person, and I didn't have any advisors around me, and I was kind of, because, you know, advisors had always told me, oh, surf is a lousy business. You know, what do you know about, not, you know, skates, a lousy business, snowboarding. Of course, they were all really good businesses. And I got to realize that I was, as an entrepreneur, I was just thinking about things five years before anybody else. So for everyone else, every idea I had sounded stupid. So I stopped kind of even thinking about getting advisors because I knew what they were already I had a predetermined conversation in my head, what they were going to tell me, which worked for me when I was young, but stopped working for me when I got to be more successful, for sure. Yeah, that's interesting how you say that. And uh, eventually, you didn't go to Starbucks, I assume, and, <laughs> uh, and kind of hang out. You eventually created and started Lululemon. And can you tell us just the backstory and, and how that quickly came about? Sure. I started making technical apparel for women in snowboarding. And that was really the first time that women came out and started doing athletics. It's hard to believe now, but a cool girl back when I was in high school would be the one that would skip phys ed to smoke cigarettes. Yeah. Right. And that kind of changed. That was starting to change. So then I'm walking down the street in Vancouver. I think it's like 1997. And I see one of those telephone posts with the ripoff phone numbers for a, for a yoga class. And I went, oh, that's interesting. I'll take one. And then I walk down the street and I'm in I'm in this brand new store. Like Starbucks had the, their second store was in Vancouver. Not many people know that. But sitting there and I hear two women talk about yoga. And then I reopen up the paper the next the next day, and I and I read an article on yoga, and I go, I had I know a little bit about it because my dad my dad was one of those uh, dropouts and an assistant gardener at the Esalen Institute in you know Big Sur, yeah. California, back in the hippie days of the seventies. So I had some context. And I went, oh, you know, like, this is interesting. Like when I hear three things that closely together, I I usually act. But geez, did I want to go back into business for myself again? Anyway, I went to the yoga class. It went from six people, which was five people, five women and me, to 30 people in like 20 days. And I looked at the trajectory of that vis-a-vis surf, skate, snowboarding. I went, this is going to be the next big thing. And I basically sold the farm. 
mortgaged the kids and uh, decided, you know, I'm going to fully commit to this because whoever can get into this and really understand it. And because I had this new business model of, of vertical retailing, and instead of making a pant like I did in snowboarding that would retail for $150 by going direct and missing out the middleman, I could sell that pant for $90. And I knew at 90, I could sell millions, maybe billions. And that, in fact, came to fruition. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And, and thinking back, you know, bring me back. I first learned how to snowboard probably around that time, 97. And it was the hip, cool thing, both guys and girls. And But it is true in terms of also how you saw yoga just start and really become what it's become today. And for you at that time, what were those first days like and, and how'd you go about it? And was there ever a time early on where you maybe thought I shouldn't have done this? Yeah, there were, I'd say over the first, so when did I, I probably started the first patterns in 97, incorporated in 98. And then when was the day I would say that we actually became successful would have been April 20th, 2020 or 19, 2002, I guess, because that's the day I got married. So there was a four year period there when I probably was close to bankrupt three or four times. And I, in order to keep this idea of vertical retailing, in order to like let it be go by word of mouth, because I felt like word of mouth marketing, if you had the best product in the world, was the best way to get it out. And um, I used community marketing. Like, you know, I invented community marketing, I guess, at, at West Beach when I didn't have enough money to sponsor the big snowboarders. So I would pick the top six people just under a pro at every mountain. And they usually they ended up being the coolest, nicest people on the mountain. And it was far more, the effective ROI on that was credible and created kind of a nicer place to work too. It wasn't so transactional. Pardon me. So I did that with yoga and got all the yoga instructors. Of course, no one would sponsor a, a yogi type of thing. And so anyway, the, the real thing what you're getting at though, is I, is I kept kind of the beautiful thing is I the house in Vancouver I had, I could borrow on it. So I borrowed on it to start Lululemon. And then I borrowed on it again. And that took me to my limit. And then Lululemon, it went to almost bankruptcy again. But housing prices in Vancouver, it was like, this is a place where they'd gone up more than anywhere else in the world. I borrowed on it a third time. And then I, I my, was, but my product wasn't turning over fast enough and wasn't trading. So I decided to do wholesaling just once to kind of move my product around the company I wholesale to went bankrupt. So it almost, it, I was with dollars of bankrupting me again. And then West beach moved back from Salem, Oregon to Vancouver. And they asked me to be the CEO. So I left Lou lemon, hired a couple like incredible girls. One of them I ended up marrying to run the company. And I funded Lou lemon by running West beach. And then just when Lou lemon was going under again, they fired me at my company, West beach. And gave me like a $60,000 severance. And that $60,000 allowed us to take Lululemon over Christmas and had it all occur. So probably close to five times it went nearly bankrupt in the first five years. It's just so incredible. And, and I admire your ability to just keep going and doing it because so many entrepreneurs, and I, I think from all the conversations I've had on this show, it's just the ones that are able to pick themselves off the mat and do it and keep going. But a lot of people hear your name and they don't realize, never realize that five times you may have gone bankrupt. You know, they see Lululemon today and they see you. And I love those stories. And, you know, was there a point in time 
where you said to yourself, wow, this is even bigger than I imagined? Well, I could have said probably in 2000 and maybe the year 2000, two years after we started, I knew from surf, skate, snowboarding that sports that transferred onto the street and started to hit something called the posers, people that wanted to look like the sport allowed, like, for instance, if there's only like 2000 people that really surfed in the world back in 1980, well, by the time you got people in Ohio buying surf shorts in the dozens, that actually gets the economy of scale and gets the pricing down, allows you to do technology, you know, get your right fabrics, more colors and all that kind of thing, which really fuels the actual super athletes in the sport. But I, I failed at mountain biking and beach volleyball because no one wanted to look like that out on the street. So this is, I think that's the, you know, the important part to, to get there. That's, that's why I knew. So anyway, getting back to your point, my wife and I were walking down the street in 2000 and we passed a girl and we turned around to look at her because she was wearing a pair of Lululemon yoga tights on the street. And she turned around and looked at us looking at her bum because that's where her logo was. <laughs> and I remember we had a lot of, you know, it's kind of an embarrassing moment, but that was the moment I know that Lou Lemon had made its way out onto the street and was going to be the brand that it could be. More from our guest, but first, a word from our sponsors. The CFOs that get it, get it. The CFOs that don't, don't. Let's talk about the CFO, the Chief Financial Officer. Today's CFO is critical to the strategy and success of the business. And in growing companies, there are two kinds of CFOs. One, who's struggling to keep up, spreadsheets everywhere, manual processes, errors, and lack of visibility into the numbers. It takes weeks to close the books. The other is on top of their game. Automated reports, inventory, e-commerce, and HR flow into the financial models seamlessly. Insights coming with the click of a button. As a business owner, I know how important it is to know your books inside and out, to stay ahead of the competition. That's why NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system used by over 28,000 growing businesses. 93% of surveyed businesses increase their visibility and control after upgrading to NetSuite. Over 29,000 businesses already use NetSuite. Head to netsuite.com slash HSH for a special one-of-a-kind financing offers. That's netsuite.com slash HSH. netsuite.com slash HSH. And our next sponsor. Everyone is talking about fake spring and how difficult it is to dress around this time. But that's because it is. When I walk out of my New York City apartment in the morning, it can be difficult to know if I'm dressing for winter or a warm spring day. Luckily, Faraday makes it way easier. They make the perfect clothes for all seasons. Faraday is a family-run brand making high-quality, timeless clothing with modern design and functionality. It's that kind of effortless style you want every time you go digging in your closet. That set, that shirt, that dress that feels like you've had them for years. Maybe it's in a gorgeous print and it looks like it might be vintage, but it fits so well that it feels like it was just made yesterday for you. Well, that's Faraday. My personal favorite Faraday items are their sweaters, which are comfortable yet stylish and warm yet breathable. The perfect item for all times of the year. And Faraday's so confident in the quality of their stuff 
They have a lifetime guarantee of quality. They'll replace or fix your clothes forever, no matter what. Talk about making it easier to get dressed. And right now, Faraday is giving all HSH listeners 20% off. That's 20% off. So head to FaradayBrand.com slash HSH and use code HSAs at checkout to snag 20% off all your new spring staples. That's code HSH at Ferrity, F-A-H-E-R-T-Y brand.com slash HSH for 20% off. FerritiBrand.com slash HSH. And we're back. I want to talk about some hardships that, that you've endured many people might not know, and we'll get into it. I guess you can tell it best, but while you were in your 30s, you had a form of, of muscular dystrophy. Can you tell us about that and really how that impacted you at that time? Sure. And again, I consider myself to be exceedingly fortunate because a lot of people that have what I have are in wheelchairs when they're 10 years old and have already died and et cetera. I have a, it's one of those weird diseases where it affects everybody differently and in severity and speed and everything else. So I'd done the Ironman when I was 28 and then, and then something was going on. I just couldn't, I just couldn't swim, you know, like I, my times just dropped off and I was so weak and I couldn't understand it. Anyway, I went to a neurosurgeon and he took one look at my body and saw my upper body was about half the size of my lower body and said, I probably have this size given the diagnosis for that. But relatively, I felt like Superman still. And I went, and the immediate thing, of course, is I went into denial. You know, like, okay, well, this is going to hit other people. It's not really going to affect me. But as time went on, I just like stopped swimming. And then I got kind of like subconsciously depressed about doing weights. So I stopped doing weights, but I, you know, I started doing 10K runs and that was hurting my back. So then I went into squash because going to side to side was actually made it feel better. Started doing that. And then after about 10 years, I couldn't lift the racket over my head and everyone had figured out they could beat me by just lobbing the ball. <laughs> so then I started climbing. You we, have all these, we have all these mountains in Vancouver. So I just started climbing mountains because my I thought that the disease fascicular scapular muscular dystrophy was just going to be upper body. So I've done that for, you know, I'm 66 now. I've been doing that for well, off and on for 20 years, but four or five times a week. And now I went down to three times a week, then two times a week. And now, now it could be in my last days of, of doing that. I, the interesting story is two years ago, I was in an airport in Xiamen, China, and uh, brand new running shoes and a brand new polished marble floor. And I caught my right foot because my, my foot doesn't come. I can't flip my front of my foot up anymore. And of course, I fell on the marble floor and it really hurt. <laughs> but I got up really fast, you know, my check my ego and everything else. And I walked about 15 feet and did the same thing again. So I knew that, you know, it was progressing to my lower body. And uh, so if I extrapolate out now, I'm probably going to be in a wheelchair in seven to eight years from now. So I decided, you know, like I, you know, I've got to shift my thinking and take all my business knowledge and people development knowledge. And I've got to like shift it over to muscular dystrophy. Can I ask you, you know, you, you're a super competitive athlete through your entire life, really, in so many different ways, so many different sports. How hard is that for you personally to have to give up? I, I love how you made changes, right, and did different things, but, but how hard is that 
for you to have to kind of put it aside potentially? Well, I think that the fun about athletics and being in great shape is that when you're being competitive in something, it's so easy to stay in great shape. You know, when I was wrestling in university, you have to wrestle to that person's level. When I doing triathlon, it's, you know, you've got the person next to you or when you're playing squash, it just, the game keeps going until somebody messes up and, and it's so much fun. And then I think shifting to something where I'm just trying to maintain, just trying to be almost It almost feels like being mediocre, but I'm actually having to compete against my own mortality, my own life, my own, um, my own health. And you know, what's important. It it takes a different type of motivation for sure, but I figure it out. People figure it out. And it it became more of like, okay, I'm going to surround myself with five or six different people. We're going to go up the mountain. We're going to talk about business. We're going to complain about our wives (laughs) and do. And I used it as a learning experience. And I used it as a mentoring experience to anyone that wanted to come and talk to me, they could come and climb the mountain with me. And that's perfect. Now I'm at the stage, I think where I'm doing long walks and people can now come with me on that and try to keep the intellect going and um, be competitive in the point of uh, there is no competitiveness anymore, quite frankly, I've, I've proved everything I need to prove. And it's, I guess it's really about giving back and it sounds weird. And it almost sounds, ah, there's another guy doing that, but I don't need another dollar in life. And the thrill is really watching younger people or grow and develop. And I don't need to be on their boards. I don't need them giving me any equity. I just, you know, I'm just really, and of course my own, my own five boys, it's, it's, you know, they're all corporations in themselves and, and I want to mentor and, and, uh, and challenge them too. For you now, I know that you recently, I guess, committed a hundred million us dollars, um, towards yep. research and awareness and, is this something you're doing on your own from personal finances? Is this? Yeah, it's what? totally post-tax dollars. <laughs> <laughs> well, <That's> impressive. <laughs> some, some of the things that I can fund out of my, I have a foundation and um, really gets set up because, you know, I, when I was, I've sold Lululemon shares over the time, and it just makes tax sense to set up a foundation and have dollars in there. So if I'm giving a um, anything, any money to like a university or any kind of that, that type of thing, I can pull that money out of my foundation. And really that comes from the, the real bottlenecks. And I know you're involved in ALS, but the, the bottlenecks are one, what's a marker that they can actually test to find out if you're getting better or not. So that's number one. So we, we give money away for that. Number two is we've got to set up a, a foundation for clinical trials and using pigs and, and mice. So that's it's all standardized and we don't get a test in Australia that's different than the one in Austria that can't be uh, verified. So we do it all in one place. And then the third thing is because there hasn't been clinical trials or a marker, there's not enough people in registries in order to, to pull people out to do yeah. clinical trials. So these are things we're giving money away with. The really interesting thing actually is that the cystic fibrosis uh, uh, struggle and the spinal muscular atrophy struggle, both of these have figured these out by uh, getting working with companies, giving them money to shift kind of their thinking from one disease into what their disease has been and not upsetting their kind of equity uh, base at all, but going, look, if you're successful and only if you're successful, then we'll take a royalty on that drug or we'll get three times money back that we put into it so that there's just so much incentive for companies to do it. And so everyone wins in that kind of scenario. And when that kind of financing started coming in, people started thinking about it. it's really changed the face of medicine and financing of farm, especially for rare diseases. 
Yeah. It's a genetic disease. And how do you, obviously, with family, five boys and, and multiples, and as I talked to you, as we spoke with ALS, it's, it's genetic as well. What types of things can you do for people who might not know this or, or things that you want to do so we can get ahead of it with prevention? Are there things that are possible? Well, as I said, you know, the part of me putting the hundred million into it is that I don't like to ask other people for money and I like to be responsible for what I, I need to do in life. But I've gone public in this just recently and tried to make a big splash as I can because I do want to take bring scientists out of the woodwork, people that have got a great idea that they can possibly like move into FSHD. I really like the idea of the X Prize and working with your Peter Diamandis on that. We maybe might take 30% of this. I really like how they did this oil spill prize and how to top up oil. I don't know if you know this one. Yeah, can you tell that story? It's, it's pretty, it's amazing what came out of it, but can you, yeah. can you give us the background on that? Yeah, so I think on that particular prize, um, they, you know, they had, how do we take care of these oil spills that are happening in the ocean? And it just turned out, I guess, this hairdresser company, you know, one-off type of thing, had figured out how to clean oil out of their basin of their of their sink and just kind of thought, oh, if I take the same idea and take it on a larger scale, it's like it's a no-brainer and actually ended up winning. But I think what really, so that's the kind of thing you, you get people out of the woodwork that have a parallel idea, but wouldn't know to even apply for the prize. And um, I think there's a lot of people that science is moving exponentially, just like the digital world is. And I, so we just have to like make it aware enough so that people will put their efforts into it. And then back to your original question, I'm reiterating that we want people to sign up for, you know, registries and we're stimulating people going, um, finding out a, a metric in order to, to, to figure out whether anything we've solved is working or not. Yeah. I guess in addition to the achievements you've done in, in the apparel industry and being an entrepreneur and does what you're doing now in terms of really having your focus completely on this. Does it feel similar in terms of starting a business as opposed to, or running a business as opposed to kind of what you're doing? Do you get the same type of energy out of this or, or is this even more so because it's, it's such an important mission? How do I feel? I, I think when I felt when I was building my companies, I was probably younger without a lot of knowledge and uh, had lots of it was just so exciting every day to just see the numbers go up and up and up and, and going that, you know, my idea, actually, people do agree with my, my, my thoughts and ideas. In this case, it's more of a feeling of one survival. So the adrenaline of like, take, you know, being in control enough to have to take some action on my survival. And then at the other end of this, you know, amazingly enough, either we can solve FSHD or we can build muscle faster than it's degenerating. And I think possibly the exciting thing is most people die because they, when they get old, because they've lost muscle and the muscle doesn't really regenerate and then they fall and they die. So if we can uh, figure out how to build muscle as people age, it could be one of the biggest drugs of all time and could extend life by 10 to 15 years of everybody on the planet. That's a pretty interesting vision and goal to go for. And that's the, that's the world I'm in. I really hope you succeed. You know, just bringing that up, both my parents 
ended up eventually dying because of falls. And you hear it so much that that's, it shows you at that point that they're really weak. And if you're able to do that, just from so many stories that I've heard, it can be just such an incredible boon for people living longer. And really, I hope you're, you're successful in, in terms of looking at it now and, and how far you have to go. Are you optimistic that this is something you can find a cure for, for or even just really make a big difference over the next few years, let's say? Yeah, I think it's, um, you know, going back to 2001 with digital, you know, we hit in and you hit the bottom of the hockey stick on what digital was able to do. And I think that's the main reason that inflation has stayed almost zero for up until quite recently. I think that's where we are with medicine right now. I think that even the COVID thing was a was a, an example of something that might have taken 10 years to figure mm-hmm. out normally, and they did it in less than a year. And this is where science is right now. And when you start bringing in AI and and just uh, being able to use digital to, to test things, then everything moves so much quicker. And I think there's a lot more money in the world and a lot more people vested in it and interested in biotech, you know, especially out of the San Diego, Boston area and uh, probably the Vancouver area. I think these are, you know, three big centers for it. So we're really excited. And if I was to roll the dice and I was a betting man in Las Vegas, I'd say, our goal of solving this by December 31st, 2027 is upwards to 80 to 82%. I think this way all the time in business. I have to, you have to make so many decisions based on a percentage good feels. That's the way I am. Well, it worked out for you for sure in business. And just a couple quick questions before I let you go. If you were going back now and, and jumping back into the a business, let's say, or starting a new business, where would you focus your attention? Would it be apparel? Would it be other areas from just knowing everything you know? But if you were back at 25 and, and starting something again? Well, interesting enough, because I went from that surf skating into snowboarding and then, you know, sold out that. And then snowboarding ended up kind of getting into that same feeling as a, that surf skate business. So it that whole extreme sports kind of thing kind of fell off. And then yoga was the very opposite, you know, peace, love, dove, Harry Krishna, all you groovy cats. And so I just like to say, actually, I have gone back into it. I, I sold down. I'm still the largest shareholder of Lululemon, but I sold down to go into one real estate in Vancouver and Seattle, which has done incredibly well. But the thing that really excites me is I bought into Amher Sports. And Amher, with I've got a 51% Chinese partner, Anta, which is kind of the Nike of China. Tencent is in for 10% and a, and a private equity firm. And I own 20%. And we bought Arcteryx here in Vancouver, which I think is by far the hottest line, apparel line in the world. And then the other winter lines, Peak Performance out of Stockholm, Atomic, Skis out of Austria, Solomon out of France, and then Wilson Balls out of Chicago. And now we have the NBA ball taking it worldwide. But I think what the crux of that is, is that surf, skate, snowboarding, all, like I said, all took, brought their way into normal clothing apparel wear in the world. And these outdoor brands, which are the best in the world, now are moving into regular society. And so it's not a, it's not fashion made to kind of, to be functional function. It's the top line function brands in the world now being made beautiful. So that's a very distinctive. Uh, it'd be a little bit like like Lou Lemon or Arcteryx being on the West Coast 
very functional and then trying to make themselves look how a little bit Italian styling where they, you know, when I see things out of Paris or New York, it's, uh, it's very pretty and looks good for Instagram, but you'd never want to wear it in anything that you actually had to be warm for. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good point. Well, Chip, we appreciate you coming on. I hope you keep climbing that mountain keeps continuing <laughs> and just, I am sure from your competitiveness as a business guy and athlete that you're going to actually make this happen. And, and I want to thank you for sharing your story and, and really wish you the best of luck in this endeavor. Well, thanks, Robert. And good luck with your podcast. And I hope people learn lots from you. And I, I wish this was around when I was young. I think podcasts are the new media, the new news. And good for you for being on top of it. No, I, I love to hear that because I do this podcast and then we recently started a, a podcast company where we're actually creating podcasts for brands and businesses because people, they don't want to read white papers anymore, right? They want to flip in their AirPods and go to the gym or work out and listen. And the business really in, in 18 months has just really taken off and uh, I'm hoping it continues. But just to be able to hear stories and the empathy and education, just like from this interview, you couldn't find that. Maybe someone would read an article on you, right? But they're not going to get your real soul and bearing like a podcast really offers. So, yeah. Right. It has to be this length. It has to be at least this length because a newspaper article is already filtered through a writer. Yeah. And so it's rarely, 30% of it, 100% of the time is untrue or interpreted in the wrong way. Yeah. And so, um, anyway, good on you. We're, we're singing to the choir. <laughs> well, best of luck, and, and thanks so much again, Chip. Okay, bye-bye. And that's our episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to How Success Happens wherever you get your podcasts. We come out with a new episode every Wednesday morning, and you don't want to miss it. And if you like to share please feel free to pass along the show to an entrepreneur friend who could use a boost and I could always use the subscribers. And do you have ideas for guests? I always love to hear about great entrepreneurs. If you know anyone, shoot me an email at hsh at entrepreneur.com or on Twitter at Robert Tuckman. that's R-O-B-E-R-T-T-U-C-H-M-A-N or even send me a message on LinkedIn. How Success Happens is a production of Entrepreneur Media. Be sure to visit entrepreneur.com for insight on building your business, or even better yet, subscribe to our magazine. No joke, I found my first job after reading about a company in Entrepreneur Magazine back in the 1990s. It's always been my absolute favorite magazine for entrepreneurs. Thanks for listening and spending some time with me today. Until next time, my name is Robert Tuckman, just a fellow entrepreneur and your host. See you soon.